So with that said, um, if you, uh, we're going to continue on in our series. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, please do so. We're going to read Nehemiah 9, 1 through 5. We're going to cover all of Nehemiah 9, but I just want to read five to get 1 through 5 together. Nehemiah 9, starting at verse 1, reads, On October 31st, the people assembled again, and this time they fasted and dressed in burlap and sprinkled dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners as they confessed their own sins and the sins of their ancestors. They remained standing in place for three hours while the book of the law of the Lord, their God, was read aloud to them. Then for three more hours, they confessed their sins and worshiped the Lord their God. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Kedemol, Shembai, Beni, Shabanan, Bani, and Kenai stood on the stairway of the Levites and cried out to the Lord their God with loud voices. Then the leaders of the Levites, Jeshua, Kenmai, Bani, Heshbani, Hirabai, Hodai, Shenabai, and Pethadai called out to the people. Stand up and praise the Lord your God, for he lives from everlasting to everlasting. Then they prayed, may your glorious name be praised. May it be exalted above all blessings and praise. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this series that we're in of Ezra and Nehemiah. Thank you for um, the way that you work in our lives. Thank you that we can read something that happened uh, in the Old Testament so many thousand years ago, 2000 3,000 years ago, Lord, and, and it still applies to us. You are the same God yesterday, today, and forevermore. So, Lord, we thank you. Thank you that we are able to come and gather. Thank you for the blessings of camp and for the baptisms and the baby dedications, Lord. Help us uh, not forget to give you praise for what we've prayed for for so long and how you are faithful to bless it. So we thank you. Now, Lord, as we prepare our hearts, we ask that through your spirit, you guide us and lead us through your word. Pray that you use me however you see fit. Whatever you want me to say, I say. Whatever you don't, I don't. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. So we're back on our series, and while we were at camp two weeks ago, Ken, uh, our impact partner from Youth for Christ, um, covered quite a bit for us, and I appreciate that. And um, now we're going to pick up. Last last week we talked about baptisms and the important. Now we're in Nehemiah, and we just have a handful of weeks left, five more weeks left, and we'll finish Ezra and Nehemiah. So good job. And and uh, where Ezra, or excuse me, where Nehemiah leaves off on eight is Ezra reads the scripture for perhaps the first time in a very long time. So we're now at 90 years, 95 years, since the original crew showed up back to Jerusalem from Babylonian captivity. So we're 95 years removed. The walls and the temple have finally been built. And if you've been with us, you know that it's been a process. Well, if you've ever built anything, you know that it's a process. There's been interruptions both because the bad guys in the world were trying to stop them and because their selfishness wanted to build their own home first. And then everything in between. And here we are where we come to a point where the word of God was just read. And then it ends with the Feast of Tabernacle. 
in Nehemiah 8. And the Feast of Tabernacle or the Feast of Booths is basically once a year, the Jewish people, the Israelites, they still, still celebrate this um, celebration of remembrance where they will go out. And we read this back in Ezra 3. They'll go out and they'll live in a tent for a week without any provisions and hardly anything to build their tent. They just assume, they just know that God will provide for them for a whole week. So last time when we covered this uh, celebration of booths or tabernacles, we discussed they finally show up to Jerusalem after the long heartache of getting there. And then the first thing they do is they look around and say, this is awful. Let's go on a camping trip for a week. And that's what they do. But the reason why this festival is so important is because it reminds them of how God took care of them in the wilderness in Exodus for 40 years that they provided. They even mention this in Nehemiah 9, which we'll cover. And not only do they spend that time remembering what God did for their ancestors, they also get to experience it. It's kind of like real camp, and that's why I appreciate camp. Well, I appreciate camps for lots of reasons, but one of the things, the things, the things, every time I go to camp, and I mention this... Um, on our, one of our, our last night at camp, I think I've been to 25 camps in my life. I've been going to camp since I was 13 or 11. I snuck one time, but don't tell my mom. But um, kind of kidding. But uh, and I went and I've gone and I've gone to winter camp and youth camp and summer camp and men's camp and camp camp, young adult camp. I've, I, uh, when Natalie and I were first dating, I went into the impressor, and I even went to third, fourth, and fifth grade camp. That was the hardest camp in my entire life. But the one thing about it is it reminded me of the first time I went to camp as a kid, the second time I went to camp, the third time. There's always this reminder. And not only is it a reminder of what God did, it's also a present time of what God is doing. As Darren mentioned, it was amazing. It was awesome. Right then there at the present, and to remember. And that's what the celebration of booths or tabernacle is. It's to remember what God has done and to experience what he's doing. I think for us Christians, Protestants, whatever you want to call, I think it would be wise for us to find a time throughout the year to really spend a lot of time of reflecting. Now, first of all, you probably have to do a better job of having a Sabbath. Now, I'm just talking to me. Maybe you're included, but also just that time to remember what God is, and that's what I really appreciate camp. But this is where they're at. They had this great celebration, 100% focused on God. They were there. They were out in this wilderness as a family, as a community, and here they are, and they're back. And what it appears is they had not done this for 90 years, 95 years. They did it when they first arrived, and then you get busy, and now they've done it again. It's almost as if whenever you go on vacation and when you get back, well, you probably need a vacation from your vacation if you bring your children with you. But once you get back, you say, we need to do this every year. And then two years pass and you think, we need to do this again. And three years pass. 95 years and they hadn't done this. And then finally, Ezra again reads the scripture and everyone's like, oh, we missed this. We missed the booth. So this is what they've just experienced. So they get back, and if you do math, two days later, turn the page, October 31st. Some translation gives it the year and the, uh, through the Arxerian Persian calendar. But on October 31st, the people assembled again. 
And this time they fasted and dressed up in burlap and sprinkled dust on their heads. So after a great time of worshiping God, being dependent on God, they come back and now they're fasting and dressing and they are in mourning. And almost that seems like an oxymoron. We just spent this great, incredible time with God, and now two days later, why are they so downtrod? Well, when you spend that much dedicated time with the Lord, you start to realize the things in your life that you haven't dealt with. And that is where the Israelites are at. So I'm going to move through verses 1 through 5, and then I've broken up the rest of Nehemiah 9 in the three sections that we'll cover. We'll, We'll discuss what it looks like specifically to confess sin, what it means to how to worship God, why that's important, and how faithful God is despite us. So as we consider that, they 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 dressed up in burlap and they sprinkled dust on their heads. Now the equivalent to that for us would be imagine that the way that you got up this morning and the way that you got dressed represented how you felt. Some of us would still be in our PJs, right? I mean, it was probably a struggle for most of you, half of you. It was hard for me to wake up this morning when my alarm went off. I think I yelled at it and said, no, I just went to bed. And then 9.59, I show up. No, I'm just kidding. But, but, and I had this discussion with some friends last night, and we were talking about how well do you sleep on Saturday? That's how well I sleep. But now, imagine if when you woke up, however you were feeling, you dressed. Now, usually we get dressed a little bit for Sunday because, you know, we got to look okay. We got to honor the Lord. But imagine if how you dressed this morning represented how you felt. Well, first of all, that's scary because you don't want people to know what's on the inside. That's why when people say, hey, good morning, how are you? Fine. I've noticed, at least for myself, the rate in which I say fine represents how fine I'm not. (laughs) But this is what they're doing. They've just spent a whole week with the Lord, and now they are in burlap sack, and they are in basically some some, uh, goat fur, and they put ashes on their head to represent that they are being fully humiliated before the Lord. They are totally being humbled before the Lord. So the Israelites, they talk about, they have separated, verse 2, they separated themselves from all the foreigners as they confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, why did they separate themselves? It goes back to Leviticus, back in Leviticus 20, 28, it talks about you are to be holy. Holy means to separate because you are a chosen people. Paul later on tells us that in Ephesians, you are royal priesthood. To separate yourself, not because you are better than everybody else. It's because you need to be a representation of me, says God. So you need to confess your sin. We can go on about that a little bit more. But the, the one big takeaway about that is they really recognized that not only were them as individuals had sin that they hadn't dealt with, but as a community, as a family, and their ancestors, they haven't dealt with the sin. So, and here's my favorite part as a pastor, verse 3, then they remain standing for three hours while reading the book of the law, the Lord, their God. They read it aloud for three hours. Can you imagine 
If I asked, I asked you to stand and you stood for a minute and 40 seconds, I timed it. <laughs> Plus however long it took me to pray. And I was going to read all of Nehemiah 9 to really push this home, but um, I didn't want to read for 12 minutes. Can you imagine reading for three hours? And then not only that, when you were done for three hours, then look what happens right after that. Then for three more hours, they confessed their sins and worshiped the Lord their God. A six-hour worship service. Now we're talking. And that's what, that's what they were doing. That's what they were expected. Then it gives a list of names that I butchered pretty well. And, and the Levites, they were crying out in their loud voices, God with their loud voices, and then it says in verse 5, it says, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, for he lives from everlasting to everlasting. And then they prayed the beginning of their prayer. May your glorious name be praised. May it be exalted above all blessing and praise. So the leaders said, Stand up. And the reason they said to stand up is because they had thrown themselves on the ground because they were in total mourning for their sins. And their sins that they had done is they had relied on clever business tactics sometimes. Nehemiah has been, if you remember, he had the swords ready. Uh, he had been confronted. Uh, the outside world was coming in and trying to create all of this division. There was division taking place. It had taken so long for them, 95 years, to be done for a three-year project. So here they are. They're confessing of sin. So it should not be strange to us that such, after such great victories, both with the building finally done, spiritually they're doing well, that there's such a humble repentance. And this just shows that repentance is something we finish after our time with Jesus and something that grows as we grow closer to the Lord and as we see here, they are totally repentant. And then, then the prayer that we just began, and we'll walk through, that, through, through their prayer. This is the longest prayer recorded in the Bible. And what's so fascinating about the prayer is that from verse 31 to 38, we'll look at that in a minute, it's just looking back of what God has done. It's, it's an Old Testament survey which basically means just a survey, not a door-to-door, -door, do you like this over that or whatever. A survey, like a ground survey, where the people go out and, and they measure out and they see the distance and they confirm that what they know is true. And that's what the Old Testament survey or New Testament survey, it's going through the scripture confirming that it is still true. So that's what they've done. And then they're praying. And, and what, what I appreciate here is they don't actually begin to pray to God in the sense of asking until verse 32. They confess and they praise and they confess and they praise and they confess and they praise and then they present the request to God. So confession of sin. Ooh, that's heavy. No one likes the word sin. A couple of things to note when we talk about the confession of sin, just about what confession is and what it isn't. Confession is not a one-time deal. Confession of sin is not the one time that you came and recognized that Jesus is Lord and Savior. Sometimes we think we're good because 28 years ago I accepted the Lord, so I'm good. You're good, but there's still some sin that you have to deal with. 
Confession should not take place just that one time, but it should take place any time that there's sin. Confession is between you and the Lord, but it also should be shared in community. Perhaps that's difficult. It would be just as wrong if I did something wrong to Natalie, my dear wife, and instead of saying sorry to her, I just went in my room and prayed to God, I'm sorry, God, that I was mean to her. And that was it. That would not fly. You have to own it. So a confession is first between you and the Lord, but it is also to be shared in community. It's just like when David was confronted with his sin, with the sin with Bathsheba, whenever he slept with her. And he, the first thing he said is, Lord, I have sinned against you and you alone. And then he introduces what he's done. And at camp, still writing that camp high, we talked about be still in that word, Rapha means a whole bunch of things, and, and one of the things that I appreciated about being still was being disarmed. That means laying down your arms, arms as in your weapons, your guns, your swords, your rope that you're holding on to. Part of confession is putting it down. I like the description. I don't know who's, who says, who had said it originally, but it's like the little boy who'd done something wrong, and they throw the covers over their head, and their dad's sitting at the bed waiting as if he really didn't disappear. And the boy is, you can't see me. Disarm, letting down the blanket. And the more that we look at confession and practice and become more thankful for confession, it begins to show us signs of growing and growth and maturity in our faith. Who here loves a good confession? We all should. Confession is perhaps one of the greatest signs to ourselves that God has given us that we've really embraced his grace and mercy. Because if you're afraid to confess, it's because deep down inside you're worried what other people think, but you're also worried perhaps even at that lower level, way down in the depths of your belly, that maybe God's grace and mercy won't cover this one. So the more that you practice confession of sin, the more you feel the warm embrace of God's grace and mercy. Confession is not telling God something he doesn't already know. You don't say, dear God, I fill in the blank, and God's like, what? Confession is coming in an agreement with what God already knows and what we admit that we are wrong, that we have sinned. Again, it's going back to that boy that he runs under his bed and puts the blankets over and covers up, and his dad watched the whole thing, just waiting there. Confession is taking the blankets over your head and say, yep, dad, you caught me. You know what happened, and I'm sorry, because I had broke your standard. I did not hit the mark. That word sin is really an archery term of missing the mark. I know probably some of you who have done a Bible study, words of the Bible, and what they mean as you grew up, knows this term. It's an archery term. And I remember long ago um, watching the Olympics, and I always enjoyed archery. And then I remember one time, the, the first time that I, I, I heard, not the word sin, but heard it outside of the church context, was the guy pulled back the arrow and just missed the bullseye. I mean, like a fraction of a fraction. And the commentary said, he said, oh, he sinned just off the mark. And I was like, oh, he, he, what does that mean? He missed the mark. Confession is, is also 
a reminder of how God is good and how rotten we can be and we are and that we are all in need of a savior. And going back to that archery, let's just pretend that we're standing here in line and we all shoot a hundred arrows. And I'm assuming all of you are better archers than I am. And let's just say that you hit 99 bullseyes. Like you're Robin Hood and you're splitting arrow after arrow after arrow after arrow. And then on the last one, you just miss by a fraction of a fraction of a fraction. You've missed the mark. Now let's just say that for me, I'm awful because I am. And I shoot my first 99 every way. I mean, I'm shooting into the forest. I'm shooting down the street. The people in the crowd are ducking and running because I'm no good. But then my last, last arrow from small, some small miracle, I actually hit the bullseye. And in just as shock as you are, so am I. Now, what's the difference between you and me? Immediately, you will say, I hit 99 and you hit one. But even greater than that is we've all missed the mark. And that's the need for grace. That's the need for a savior. But in our humanness, we like to say, well, I hit 99 and Jackson over here hit one. But confession doesn't worry about other people's sin as it relates to pointing a finger. It relates to the sin and the sin that you're in part of. And really, lastly, before we start digging into how the people in, during Nehemiah's day dealt with it, the best way that I can describe it is for you who are a believer in Christ here this morning and who have not confessed in sin in a while, I, I consider it like a tether, like tetherball. If you don't know what tetherball is, God bless you, but it's the pole with a rope and the ball and you hit it around in a circle. And, and uh, if you have a five-year-old, she's the biggest cheater in the world. But <laughs> that's the way I'm going. You can ask Braden all about that. All right, sorry, Braden. Um, she cheated at camp. But this, this uh, wait a minute, Braden didn't cheat, <laughs> Nora cheated, okay, just to be clear. But this sin is like this tether, and what God wants you to do is be completely and get rid of the ball. Just get rid of it, cut the tether, be done with the sin in his grace. But unrepentant sin, unconfessed sin is that ball hanging dearly to that pole, and no matter how hard you hit it, it's just going to keep wrapping around and wrapping around and wrapping around. And if you don't confess it, it's just tethered there. So yes, you're forgiven. You are saved by grace, by God's grace alone. Yes, but you know the sin you don't deal with that eats at you? That's that tether. And that's what God wants to deal with. And this is what the Israelites are now facing. God has brought them out of Babylonian captivity. He's brought them into Jerusalem. They have rebuilt the temple. They have finished the walls. They can get back to being the nation God wants them to be, the people they want them to be, but they haven't dealt with all of their sin. So now they read the word, they dress uh, in burlap sap, they begin to confess their sin, and then the prayer begins. In verse 5, again, it says, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, for he lives from everlasting to everlasting. The word that they use, the Lord your God, is Jehovah Elohim, the existing one, the God, the judge, and creator. He's the one who's asking you to stand up. Because he's forgiven you. So here we are. We're faced with what 
How will they deal with their sin? And so what I, what I did here is, is I just, um, for the sake of time a little bit, is I broke down the verses, and, and 7 through 15, I brought out the you statements. You, God, you are this. So let's take a look at it. I just put them uh, in, a, in a slide here, and you can follow through. I'm just going to point out some that stood out to me. I, I, I encourage you to take time and read it this week. But the you statements... Because the Israelites, after, after they stand up and they say, Your glorious name be praised. May it be exalted above the blessings. They begin this, this statement. And they start off in verse 6. And they say it again in 7. It says, You are the Lord God. You are Jehovah. You are our Savior. Then in verse 8, they, they recognize that He is the one who made a covenant. If you look at verse 8. You, God, the Lord, you made a covenant. And it goes on to say, because you are righteous, you do what is right, is what they're saying. You are right. You aren't God because you do what is right. You are the standard. You are the mark. You are not only forgiving. You are not only the one that sets what is right, but you are also holy and expect repentance and the sin to be forgiven, to be atoned for. Verse 3, they say, you have done what you have promised. This is a beautiful statement. Verse 8, you have done what you have promised. A covenant, a covenant is an agreement that God makes with his people. And the beautiful thing is that we do call it a covenant, and we do not call it a contract, because a contract is based on the assumption that the other person isn't going to fulfill what they promise they're going to do. That's why you write contracts of business, right? I mean, we do say that I promise to do this, and you will do this, and if you do this, I will do this. I will give you these goods or services, and you will pay this much. Sign here. Thank you very much. But the whole reason we have a contract is because if by chance the other person doesn't hold up their deal, we can say, look at here. But a covenant, what God does is this is what you are going to do because this is what I've done. And as a matter of fact, you're going to blow it, but that's okay because I'm doing your part too. And that's the covenant. And he's able to make the covenant. And then we have to remember that this is the Old Testament, not the New Testament. Jesus Christ hasn't come and atoned for our sins. So up until this point, over and over and over again, uh, the different covenants that had taken place before the blood covenant of Christ had come. He's still faithful. But then he said, and then they cry out. This is a whole community coming together, crying out. You have done what you have promised. You are always true to your word. Verse 8. Then it says, you saw the misery of our ancestors. In verse 9, when they were in captivity, when they were in Egypt. This is the beginning of the Old Testament survey. You heard their cries. You displayed miraculous signs and wonders in verse 10 in front of against Pharaoh and his officials. You have heard their cries. You have displayed miraculous signs and wonders. You knew how arrogantly they were treated. You have a glorious reputation, verse 10. You divided the seas for your people, verse 11. You hurled their enemies into the depths of the sea, 
You led our ancestors by a pillar of cloud and fire. In verse 12. Specifically, it says, you took care of them day and night. You came down from Mount Sinai. Verse 13. You gave them regulations, the Ten Commandments. You instructed them concerning your holy Sabbath. You gave them a chance to have rest. You commanded them through Moses. You gave them bread from heaven and water from a rock, verse 15. You commanded them to go and take possession of the land, verse 15. So these first 7 through 15 verses are all the recognition of who God is, the praise. These are all the things you have done. Now, have you ever taken a moment to survey, going back to that word, survey of all the things God has done in your life? Have you just sat back and said, you, God, have done this? You, God, you, you fulfilled your promise by doing this. And really, if you take a look at this, just real quick, you are, you made, you have done, you are always, you have seen the misery, you have heard, you displayed, you knew, you have a glorious reputation, you divided the sea, you hurled your enemies, you led, you came, you gave, you instructed, you commanded, you gave. That's our God. And this is the reminder. These are all the things. So have you sat down and wrote a list, a reminder? Have a journal. Maybe it's on your phone, on your notes. And if you're honest, who here started a note and started taking a note and then went to Instagram or YouTube or so God, these are all the things you have done. And then next thing you're looking how to fill in the blank. YouTube's a great instructor. And then you, oh God, wait a minute. Here's all the things you've done. A reminder. It's so easy. And, and Darren had pointed this out and reminded us from camp. You know, when we're in a storm, deep down inside, we're like, get us out of here. But truly what we need is hold on to me. And then as soon as we get out of the storm, don't leave the storm too quickly because you'll forget. Write it down, what it is. So they spend their whole time, the first handful of verses, eight verses there, just saying, here are all the things that you have done, God. So during this week, if you need something to read, go through Nehemiah 9, underline something that stands out to you. What has he done for you, solved for you, heard for you, displayed for you? And then, verse 16 through 29, they begin to confess their sin. This is the ouchy part. So, they, 18 times they, they acknowledge who God is. And then, on verse, uh, then nine times they point out some sins. And what they do is they point out the sins of their ancestors too. And this is not saying, well, if you gave me better moms and dads, I would have been a better person today. Granted, we do live in the original sin, we have that. But what they're doing is they're confessing the sin, starting with it. And we'll move quickly through that. There's a slide for that. In verse 16, it says, But our ancestors were proud and stubborn, dot, 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 and so am I. They paid no attention to your commands, dot, 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 so did I. They refused to obey, verse 17, so did I. They did not remember the miracles you had done, so did I. How many times have God... Has God fulfilled something, did something, and you really said, wow, that is miraculous. And then all of a sudden, the next day, you're like, but God, it's not fair. 
At least that's my whiny voice to God. I don't know what your whiny voice is. Verse 17, they became stubborn and they appointed a leader. And it says in verse 17, to lead them back into captivity. We're continuing on this survey. Verse 18, even when they made an idol shaped like a calf. And you're like, well, I've never had a golden calf in my room. But an idol, and we've discussed this several times now as we were going through this. An idol is anything that takes your attention away from God. Now, there, it's great to have a great many different things. It's fine. And, and it's great to have things as long as the things don't have you. And that's hard. Corey Ten Boone says, hold everything with a loose hand so that way God doesn't have to rip it from your fingers. So we may not have a golden calf, but we may really put our job first. We may really put our spouse first. We may really put our children first. We may really put things first. We may really put vacation. We may really, we may put serving God first over a relationship with him. So easy to do. Verse 26 goes on. They were disobedient and rebelled against you again. So did I. But as soon as there was peace, your people again committed evil in your sight. Has anyone read through the Old Testament and you just shook your head and you're like, these guys, get it together. And then all of a sudden you're like, hold on, that's me. And then the last one, verse 29, that I found, they became proud and obstinate and disobeyed your commands. I got this. And if you're a camp, I got this, guys. So as I was reading and listening, uh, people talk about uh, this specifically, some commentators and reading through it and um, doing a series listening on prayer. And there was one who mentioned that uh, when someone comes to church on Sunday, it's real easy for them to look for a familiar chair. Anyone sitting in the same chair over and over again? Yeah. God bless you guys for sitting in the splash zone. But, um, you know, that's my chair. Has anyone, has anyone, I mean, we've only been doing this here in this building for like two and a half months, I think. And you look and you're like, you're in my chair. Uh, yeah. If you sit in the front, no one will take your chair. <laughs> But what it is, is you come, and how do you come to church? What do you expect when you show up? What do you expect? Do you expect God to show up? Do you expect to be entertained? Do you expect the worship to be perfect, the message to be perfect, the lighting to be perfect? Do you expect to get the close parking spot? What do you expect? There better be donuts. I mean, what do you expect? Do you expect to sit back and watch the performance? This is not a performance. Or do you show up expecting to be participants? You are not the audience. God is. I have to remind myself that all the time. Because it's real easy for me to go through here and like, ooh, sin. Hey, sinners. I don't want to say that, but this is what... God's word says, so I'm trying to be faithful. The worship team, they're trying to be faithful. But this is not a performance for you. There's an audience of one, and the audience of one wants our participation. 
And why do I bring that up? Is because the more that you participate, not just here on Sundays, but throughout the week in your devotion, it will become so, God will become so familiar to you that you are willing to confess sin. We are all the participants, and He is the audience. And the more, the closer you grow, the more that you can share, and the more open you are, and the more that you realize God is good. And I think, to go on a small tangent, I think, and I'm not 100% church online, I'm 99.5% against church online, simply because where do you get to serve? Now, granted, I have a friend, a very close friend. He is a online, what is he? An online campus pastor of small groups, church down south. I make fun of him all the time. Um, but really, his whole job, and he told me, because I asked him about this, and I said, well, if you watch the sermon, I'm not making fun of you. And he said, well, now I'm going to watch. But uh, he, the, what his whole goal is, is, and he's the one who said, I want everyone to be a participant. And they're a very large church down south, and there's a big group of people who watch it in the service in Australia. I don't know how that the correlation. And he said, my whole thing is to get all the people in the community to get together to watch it and then to go serve. Now, granted, I, I, I'm not trying to pick on anyone who's homebound, who's sick, who has various reasons. If you're on vacation, sure, tune in. That's great. But there's something about being all together and worshiping God. And that's why it, not just personal confession of sin, but corporate confession of sin. And as we consider what that means, why we need to confess, why we need to make these you statements is because the final part, once they just spill it all out of who God is and all of the sins, then they go back and they recognize God's grace and mercy. And that's our last slide. Let's take a look at that. Back at verse 17, it says, but you are a God of forgiveness, gracious merciful, slow to become angry, rich, and unfailing love. But in your great mercy, you did not abandon them to die in the wilderness, verse 19. The pillar of cloud and fire showed them away, verse 19, even though they didn't want it. Verse 4, you sent your good spirit to instruct them. Now that we live post-Pentecost, we have the spirit. We have his spirit in us, living in us. Verse, five, or verse 20, it says, you did not stop giving them manna and water even when they complain about it. You sustained them in the wilderness for 40 years. They lack nothing, verse 21. It goes on in verse 21. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. 40 years they were walking in a big cube in the desert. It should have only taken probably three months. 40 years, their clothes didn't rip and their feet didn't swell. God cares about the little details. Then you helped our ancestors conquer kingdoms and nations, verse 21. You made their descendants as numerous as the stars, verse 23 of oh, talking about uh, Abram. You heard them from heaven. Your great mercy, you sent them liberators. You listened once more from heaven, verse 28. In your wonderful mercy, you rescued them from times, verse 28. In your love, you were patient with them for many years, verse 30. You sent your spirit 
verse 30. In verse 31, but your great mercy, you did not destroy them completely or abandon them forever. And this is what confession gets you. And for those of you who have put your trust in Jesus Christ, you know of this, but perhaps you can return and cut that rope and kick that tether ball of sin that's hanging on. Because what's going to happen here, spoiler alert, is they're going to do well for a while and they are going to celebrate. And next week we're going to read that they sign a new covenant and saying, I won't ever do that again. And they do do that again. And that's the need for a savior, each and every one of us. And finally, in verse 38 of the same chapter, it says, after that, it says, the people responded, in view of all this, we are making a solemn promise and putting it in writing on the seal document are the names of our leaders and Levites and priests. All in one accord. Yes, we still need to be saved. So this morning we're going to receive communion. We have a couple of songs. Some of the guys will pass out the elements and you're invited to participate in communion with us. The only requirement is you're a believer in Jesus Christ. If you are not, I would love to talk to you about that. But during this time in the next couple of songs, ask God if you don't already know what it is, whatever sin you need to confess, ask him. He's faithful to let you know. And deep down inside you probably already know. But just take this time just ask God, because he is gracious and merciful. And this is not to beat you up. Confession is that great love that he has. And final, as you're considering this, I think one of the things we have to be careful of with those of us who have followed the Lord for more than a couple of weeks, I would say, it's not a head knowledge issue, your sin. It's a heart issue. Uh, the illustration that, that, that I heard that I keep coming back to is you and your spouse or you and your best friend, if you're not married, you and your children, whatever. You get in a fight and an argument and you're not getting along with your wife or your husband. So you say, you know what, I'm going to go to the bookstore and I'm going to get every book on a healthy marriage. And you get it and you read it and you're like, oh, I'm smarter for it now. Then you come home to your wife and say, chapter three says I should apologize to you. And you close it and you walk away. You never apologize. Don't try that. Sometimes, I know at least for me, it's, uh, if I get the Greek or the Hebrew down, if I, if I, if I get this, if I get smarter, then I'll do better. The issue is, if I surrender my heart, then I'll do better. Because I, now I'm just laying it out and saying, here it is. Now again, I'm not saying that head knowledge is, isn't bad. We should continue to grow, but... If our head is getting bigger than our repaired heart, there's a problem. So consider that and just continue to pray. And we have a couple of songs. And like I said, uh, once you get the elements, we'll receive communion together. But let's pray. God, thank you for this time and thank you for your word. Thank you that um, you make a way when there's no way, Lord, and that your grace and your mercy abounds and that uh, although we are sinners, uh, we are saved by your grace and and no, we shouldn't continue just to sin, as Romans tells us, so your grace abounds by no means. But yet you are faithful to forgive, and Lord, thank you for the gift of confessing of sin, that we don't have to deal with it on our own, even after we are believers in your Son. Uh, thank you for um, just all the you are statements in this, because you are this and so much more.
Lord, thank you for rescuing us over and over again. Thank you for your love and thank you that you don't leave us in shame. Lord, that you save us, that you rescue us. So Lord, as we sing a couple more songs unto you and we worship you, prepare our hearts to receive communion, Lord. We thank you for that gift. Thank you for your son. We thank you and love you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.